If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. Today we come to the end of our study in the book of Esther, a book that presents a lot of challenges, and for me at least, more so at the end of the book than at the beginning. And to remind you what I've mentioned, I think, every Sunday, what we do not find in Esther is any mention of God. There's no mention of prayer, no indication of praise. There's no mention or quotation of scripture. And there is no evidence of particularly godly people. In fact, it is a narrative in which we find very few wise decisions being made, beginning with Vashti, who refuses to obey the king's command, the king's decision to get rid of her and replace her uh, by having a contest, Esther's decision to join that vile contest. Mordecai tells her not to reveal that she is a Jew. And then Mordecai himself announces that he's a Jew when he refuses to bow down and honor Haman. Haman decides he's going to exterminate the Jewish race rather than just have Mordecai put to death Mordecai for his part threatens his niece his adopted daughter that she needs to do something about this or else well some bad things will happen to her Haman builds gallows to hang Mordecai when Haman thinks the king wants to honor him in fact it is Mordecai um, he gives the king advice I think the only wise decision up to this point is made when Mordecai finds out about an assassination plot. He tells Esther, who tells the king, and the plot is thwarted. So I mentioned before, it's been suggested that the book of Esther has two conflicting worldviews. That of Haman, who believes in chance and the whole casting of lots, the poor, or Purim, the plural, that on this basis he can annihilate the Jews. And then there's that of Mordecai in which he stresses human initiative. And so we find his threats, we find Esther's schemes, all in order to try to thwart what Haman is about to do. As I've suggested, neither one of these worldviews is right. The reality is between a belief in chance and fate, behind all human actions and schemes, is the God of the universe who is in fact in control. If you'll bear with me, let me give just a brief summary of what we've seen thus far. Haman asks for and gets permission to exterminate the Jews because of an ancient hatred. He is from the line of the Amalekites. He's known as an Agagite because Agag was the last king of the Amalekites whom Saul was supposed to kill and he didn't and that's why Saul lost uh, the kingdom. Mordecai informs Esther of this edict that has been sent out. It's been approved by the king. And he tells her that if she fails to act, she herself will be destroyed. Um, If she remains silent, deliverance will happen, but she still will be destroyed. And lastly, he says, perhaps this is why you became queen in the first place. Esther tells Mordecai and the Jews and Susa to fast for three days. And then she will go to the king. And as she writes, or says so dramatically, and if I perish, I perish. She approaches the king on the third day. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king is pleased to see her. More than that, he is pleased with her. And so he allows her to come in. She has a request. She wants to have a special meal, a banquet that day for the king and for Haman. The king agrees. 
at the end of the banquet or at some point during the banquet, the king asked her again what it is that she wants because obviously it wasn't just about a banquet. And she says, well, let's have another banquet tomorrow and then tomorrow I will tell you what it is that I am requesting. Haman is thrilled that he is included in this very intimate meal between the king and the queen. And, he, and yet he is distressed because on the way out, Mordecai still will not bow down to him. So he tells his wife, he tells his friends, and they say, this is what you do. You build this huge gallows, 75 feet high, and go tomorrow and tell the king, this guy won't obey you, we need to hang him, and then you can kill him. That night the king cannot sleep, and so he has the royal chronicles read to him, and it comes across the story about Mordecai informing Esther and then the king about this assassination plot. And the king says, did we do anything for this guy? I mean... I mean, this guy saved my life. Did we honor him in any way? And they're like, no. He's like, who's in the court right now? Well, Haman was coming in because he was going to ask for permission to kill Mordecai. And the king wants to know, um, what should I do if I really delight, if I want to honor someone, what should I do? And Haman's thinking, that's me. He wants to honor me. He's delighted in me. And so he comes up with this rather elaborate, let him, uh, let them robe the king, the, uh, let me see, let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. The king says, that's a great idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. More, Haman does it, but he is beside himself. He went there to ask for this man to be killed and instead this man is being honored by the king. Well then, now we have the second banquet and the king again asks Esther what she wants. Then Queen Esther answered, this is in chapter 7, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. The king demands to know who is it who would dare put the queen's life in danger. The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. The king is outraged, he's enraged, he leaves before he can do anything he shouldn't do, and while he is gone, Haman knows he's in trouble. He, he pleads with the queen and somehow falls on her couch where she was reclining. The king walks in and it's like, well, you're going to molest the queen too in my presence. And so they take Haman out and hang him on the gallows that were built for Mordecai. Today we come to chapter 8. And one might well be tempted to say, well, all's well that ends well. Look at verse number one. That same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Notice, by the way, he's dead and he's still referred to as the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Can it get any better? Mordecai is given Haman's position, Haman's estate. 
But there is still a problem. Look in verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overriding or overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? You see, at this point, the edict still stands. Esther wants it revoked. Verse 7, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Haman is dead, but the edict stands. Look at verse number (coughs) 8. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. This is the key thing here. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. We know elsewhere from the story of Daniel, this is known as the law of the Medes and Persians, that once a law is made, it cannot be canceled. It cannot be revoked. Seems rather odd. We're used to changing laws all the time. But the law or the edict that Haman had written cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. So now we have plan B. Verse 9. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the said traps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. This sounds a lot like what we read about Haman, but there are at least two differences. This is also written to the Jews. The first one was not. It's written to everyone, but the Jews are not mentioned specifically or especially. And then the couriers ride fast, or ride fast horses, especially bred for the king. There's a certain urgency with this edict, and it's being sent out. But did you notice something in verse number 9? I don't know if you've been keeping track, but remember that Haman wrote the first edict in the first month, the 13th day? And where are we right now? We're in the third month, the 23rd day. What have they been doing for the past two months and a week? And a week? Um, why has there been a delay? We're not told. We're simply not told. But now we have a sense that, yeah, there is, there is a special sense of urgency. So what is this plan B? What is this edict that is being sent out? Verses 11 through 13. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. 
A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. I point out at least two differences between his edicts. Even though both are sent out under the royal seal, only Mordecai's edict mentions that this is the king who is granting this right. Haman sort of, yeah, this is a royal edict, but he sort of puts himself forward. And secondly, Haman focused on the Jews throughout the empire, but Mordecai uh, focuses on the Jews in every city. Now, there have to be Jews in the countryside. I mean, they're, they're not all urban Jews. They're not all staying in the cities. But one could argue that the assumption was made that on that 13th day of the 12th month, they would all gather in a central location. That would probably be a city. So it is written to the Jews in the cities so that they can prepare to sort of absorb the country Jews, if you wish. They can all get together and they can protect themselves. It's another difference. As to who will be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, it's not going to be the Jews, but those who are against them. And this, the last difference is that both edicts allow for the taking of spoil. It is this edict, for me at least, that presents the first of a series of really serious problems. The Jews have to be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is contrary to what God commands. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 35, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. This is what God is saying. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone, and no one is left slave or free. God says, I'll take care of you guys. This is my, this is my job. Job description, avenge, revenge, that's what I do. When my people are at their weakest, I will take care of them. In Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. By the way, both passages, the Deuteronomy passage and the Proverbs passage, are quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. And then in Leviticus, let's go back to the law. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, back in Proverbs, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. These passages and more point in the opposite direction of Mordecai's edict, this plan B, for that 13th day of the 12th month. We're confronted almost with a situation that Jacob faced when his mother had been told that he, in fact, would rule over Esau. But rather than waiting for God to take care of that, they deceived Isaac. God had promised to take care of his people, but rather than waiting for him to do that, Mordecai sends out an edict. Look, if you would, at verses 14 through 17. 
The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many, of the, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. All's well that ends well. Mordecai has been honored. The Jews are celebrating. And many Gentiles, in fact, become Jews. The last matter I, I find interesting because we find their motivation is not the fear of the Lord. It is not because they want to worship God, but because of their fear of the Jews. And so one would certainly question the sincerity of these conversions. Uh, some commentators have even referred to this as a revival where you have the Gentiles now worshiping God. That's sort of hard because we don't even have the Jews worshiping God. What we do have them is saying, listen, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, I get to protect myself and plunder my enemies on that day. In my opinion, the decisions that are made in this book have gone from bad to worse. Look at chapter 9. The day arrives. Um, Let me read to you the first 16 verses. Follow along if you would. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshadatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Parmasa, yeah, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Hamath, son of Amadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. This, what follows, is very difficult for me. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done, and an edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. 
Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. A brief summary. The Jews have the upper hand. The people are afraid of them. They have help from those in political positions because of Mordecai's power. Become more and more powerful. The ten sons of Haman are killed. And I would say probably by the sword. And they are listed. Their names are given here. 500 people are killed in Susa, where the king is. But this is not enough for Esther. This is not enough for her. She requests a second day of slaughter be granted. The deaths of the ten sons of Haman are not enough for her. They're dead. She wants their bodies hanged on the same gallows on which their father was killed. 75,000 people are killed that day by the Jews. But we are told three times the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. They killed their enemies, but they did not take their possessions. Now, I don't know about you, but I have real problems with this, particularly with Esther's request. She does not seem content with one day of slaughter. She asks that it be extended. Let's have a second day of slaughter. And, oh, by the way, the ten sons of Haman, they're dead, but I want their bodies hanging. But to me, it gets worse. Let's make this a day of celebrating, of feasting, and of joy. A day of giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Look, if you would, beginning at verse 17. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of joy and fast, feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the poor, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on to his own head. And then he and his sons should be hanged, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word poor, because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish this custom, that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. 
These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out from among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Okay, I suppose I get the part about celebrating how they were delivered from extermination. But how about the 75,000 people who were killed? Yeah, they were their enemies, but this is still 75,000 people. And I was reminded at the beginning of a new book by David Brooks called The Road to Character. Um, He writes about the end of World War II. And there was a a radio program you can actually... I guess you can get it from Amazon. Um, It's called Command Performance. It was a radio program that was sent out to the troops throughout the war. And now the war is over. Bing Crosby was the host. Well, it looks like this is it, he said. What can you say at a time like this? You can't throw your skimmer in the air. That's for run-of-the-mill holidays. I guess all anybody can do is thank God it's over. And then later in the program he says, Today though our deep down feeling is one of humility. I think I would have liked to have heard something like that from Esther and Mordecai. I get that they're celebrating that God has, well, they're not celebrating that God has, that they have been delivered. but there doesn't seem to be any concern for those that have died. I think a comparison between Passover and Purim might be instructive. First of all, Passover was ordained by God. Purim was not. In fact, we read that it is something they took upon themselves to establish as a holiday. The instructions given for the way in which Passover is to be celebrated required that the Jews remember what God had done for them. Not a word about God in this book. Purim is not about God's deliverance. It's deliverance, but God is not mentioned. The actual events of Passover recalled the deliverance of the Israelites out of exile. In Purim, the Jews are still in exile. They're not in the Promised Land. They're not in the Holy Land. Mordecai and Esther, at least, are still in Susa. They're still in exile. And in Passover, God takes an open an active role in bringing about Passover. In Purim, he's not mentioned. He is completely hidden. It's really quite shocking. The book of Esther ends rather abruptly. Um, It's only got three verses. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And all of his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes 
uh, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and, he, and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. It's interesting the way this book ends, but you'll notice two men are mentioned. One is the king who is a burden to his people. He has imposed tribute. The other is a blessing to his people. He worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. In his commentary on the book of Esther, uh, Barry Davis, it's entitled God Behind the Scene, S-E-E-N, he asks a series of questions and answers them, and I think it would be helpful for us to go through them as we end our study. If Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of the Jews are not serving God, why was the book of Esther written? Well, I think, first of all, we see that God takes care of his people even if they demonstrate no interest in him, and if they are completely undeserving of any action on his part on their behalf. In fact, if anything, God's deliverance of the Jews in Esther is more remarkable because they don't seem to be in the place geographically and spiritually that they need to be. Now, if God had delivered the three Hebrew children out of the fiery furnace, we get that. God delivered them because they worship God. Here we have people who are supposedly the people of God. They don't pray to him. They don't talk about him. They don't mention him. And yet he delivers them. You see, when you look at scripture and it talks about the people of God, we find a, a large spectrum of where they are in terms of their relationship to God. We have some people who are godly in scripture. We have some people who are openly sinful. And we have some people, like those in Esther, who are just apathetic. Don't really seem to care about the things of God. The book of Esther is one slice of that spectrum. And here you have the people of God, in a sense, refusing to go back to his place, to the promised land. Not having a relationship with him. Apathetic, it seems and taking things into their own hands. Because of this, some people have suggested the book of Esther should not be in the Bible. Um, it presents the people of God in a less than good light, in less than a perfect spiritual condition. Well, if you want the people of God who are in like an almost perfect spiritual condition, the Bible is going to be really thin. In fact, it's one of the things, I, I, I think I go through phases at different times in my life where I, I, I'm just really troubled that God is so open about the failings of his people. It is as though God doesn't know about good PR. It's like, don't tell us about the things Abraham did with Hagar. Tell us about the time he offered Isaac. We like that part. Let's, let's leave out the other part. Well, God's revelation of himself, he is very open. He is transparent about the failings of his people. For which I think we should be thankful. Because otherwise, if we would just see good people and perfect people and godly people in scripture, we might despair in our own lives. What can we learn from the book of Esther? 
Well, a number of things. Let me just suggest several. First of all, human choices do have significance in shaping our lives. Your choices are important, but God is in control. Haman made choices. Mordecai made choices, but it is God who rules the scene. Secondly, the power of this world, as real as it is, is really no more than a veneer. God raises up people into positions of power, and he removes them just as easily. Living in a democracy, I think we find that hard to swallow sometimes, because we're so invested in the electoral system and elections and campaigns, and we've lost any sight that, in fact, it's God who raises people up, and it's God who removes them from office. Thirdly, and this we saw, we've seen a couple weeks uh, so far, the actions of one individual can have far-reaching effects. Because Mordecai refuses to bow down and honor Haman, Haman wants to kill all the Jews. And then Esther does, and it's a domino effect. It's because of what one man did that we have this whole story. And we see in the book of Esther that God's justice will ultimately be achieved. What Moses had said in the Song of Moses, God, in fact, will take care of his people. Unfortunately for the people that are found in the book of Esther, they think they did it themselves. It's because of Mordecai's wisdom that they were able to do this. The third question, what is the difference between Haman and Mordecai? I would argue not much. I think for most people, Haman's the guy with the black hat, Mordecai's the guy with the white hat. He's the good guy, Haman's the bad guy. But when you look at them and you compare them side by side, there's not a whole lot of difference. As one writer put it, Haman is nothing more than the alternative face of Mordecai, a distorted reflection of the same character. The two are brothers under the skin. They're both outsiders, they're not Persian. They both rose to prominence, the second position in the land, but no reason is given for this elevation, interestingly enough. They both ruled with a strong hand. They both exerted, exerted a great deal of influence over the king. And neither had compassion for their enemies. They both despised each other. They hated each other. This is an ancient hatred. How can you say this guy's bad and this guy's good? Haman's bad, Mordecai's good. When in fact they're pretty much the same. At the end of the story, Haman is dead and Mordecai has replaced him. But are we going to argue that all's well that ends well? One last question. Why is God's name missing from the book of Esther? There are different opinions. I'm convinced that the reason is because God was not a part of their lives. They're in exile. They've refused to go back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, uh, to Judah, to the southern kingdom, the promised land. They do not honor God. They do not praise him. They do not turn to him in time of crisis. And their actions, their choices, their decisions are really suspect and devoid of any spiritual consideration. 
I think if I'm God, I don't want my name showing up in this book anywhere. But then we face the dilemma. Shouldn't we say, you know, all's well that ends well? I mean, everything turned out okay, so, so what's the problem? I don't know if this has happened to you in your life. But has there ever been a point in your life when you could say, humanly speaking, God wasn't a part of your life? That is, you did not pray, you did not honor him, you did not worship him. Just in terms of a relationship, there was no relationship with him. And yet everything was going really well in your life. Things were just going along swimmingly well. The reality is God is a God of all grace and he takes care of us even when things aren't right between us. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. I think each of us may have, in fact, experienced an Esther period in our life in which God is really not in our thoughts. Um, and that doesn't mean not going to church. We, and we may, in fact, go to church, but, but God just isn't there. And there isn't a relationship and there is no thought about God taking care of us. And yet, that's exactly what he does. If we're not careful, we will say all's well that ends well. We'll say, well, it's okay that Esther entered that vile sex audition contest because it all turned out good. It's okay that Mordecai did not obey the king because it all turned out good. It's okay that the Jews, in fact, killed 75,000 people because it all turned out good. Um, No. If anything, the book of Esther should tell us that we are to have a relationship with God and He will take care of us. God is faithful when we are faithless. Ask yourself, what if Mordecai, what if Esther hadn't gone to the king? What if Mordecai hadn't gotten the plan B edict? Would God have protected his people? I think he would have. Would some of them have died? Well, without question. But in the same way that he promised Rebekah that Jacob would be served by Esau, we'll never know we will never know how God was going to work that out because Rebecca and Jacob deceived Isaac to get what God had promised. We are much more today like Mordecai than we are like the saints, other saints in Scripture. We take matters into our own hands. We see danger and we come up with a plan to fight against that danger. That in itself is not necessarily wrong. But are we like Mordecai? Are we like Esther? No thought of God. No mention of God. We've got this covered. We've got a plan. We'll take care of ourselves. Um, A woman who I referred to as Anthi, someone uh, I grew up with in the Philippines. Uh, My mom's age, she's since passed away. Uh, I hadn't seen her for a while and we found out that a friend of ours 
had been elected mayor of my hometown of Baguio and so we were pretty happy you know, that he got elected and she said and now we can kill all our enemies I'm like what? <laughs> what are you talking about? she was kidding of course but the reality is we look for the solutions on our own quite apart from God and we say all's well that ends well it all turned out okay so I must have been doing the right thing no Esther and Mordecai were not doing the right thing and yet God took care of his people and we in our lives should not be worried about the outcome that's not our primary focus it is our relationship with God let's pray together Father, we live in a result-oriented society, economy. We want to see results. We want to see how it all turns out. We want to talk more about the destination than we do the journey. And in the process, we as your people are more like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in Persia than we are supposed to be. We are people oftentimes who take matters into our own hands, who don't think about you, who do not pray to you or honor you or worship you. And part of the reason we think this is okay is because our lives are going along pretty well. And we think if everything is going well, then we must be doing well. May we learn from the book of Esther that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. This is not a call to be faithless, but to know that you are in control. And by your grace, may we be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. And now as I prepare to leave I commit this congregation into your care, which is where they've always been. I pray for those that will be speaking while I'm gone, that you would give them uh, the thoughts, the words to say. May what they say be of great benefit to the congregation. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.